This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. I want to talk about the uh, the high fees that were paid. And every whenever I mentioned to somebody that I'm going to talk about that, there was a smile on their face. This is like considered a maybe a quirky episode, maybe stupid mistake, and you would glance over that. Uh, but I think there are a few fundamental things, a few fundamental problems that, that led to this. So let's talk about what happened. Um, there was one transaction, $100 Ether value transferred and 2.6 million US dollar value in fee being paid to an exchange. At that point, people did mostly consider that this was a um, cat finger mistake, somebody rolling their own wallet software, uh, I also had conversations around that, and that was maybe somebody would stand up, say, sorry, that was me, uh, but what do we do now? And there have been incidents in the past uh, along the same lines, like mostly in Bitcoin, um, where those people, where people who, where something like that happened to them, where they got their money back from the, uh, from the miner. Actually, that's something that I find a bit strange, to be honest. Um, I mean, if, you, if you're a solo miner, you can do whatever you want. But if you're a mining pool, which right does the mining pool have to decide on behalf of their miners that they forfeit their own mining rewards? I think this is, this is under-debated. Uh, everybody seems happy, but as a, as a miner in this mining pool, I would not be happy if the pool makes that decision on my behalf. Um, I haven't been part of a mining pool, but I would assume, at least in the real world, that if you join a mining pool, you have to say yes to some terms and conditions, which should like tell you what kind of rights you have and which ones you don't. And either you accept that and are part of the mining pool or you don't join, right? I have, yeah. a, I have a pretty clear idea of um, what should be not, not right or wrong, but coming from the, nor the normal commerce law, if, if you get something, which has the completely wrong price, then the transaction is void. Like you can you can claim it on, in court and say, listen, this is completely wrong, um, and the other party should actually get forced to give you the money back. Now that's just my fifty cents to it. Yeah, and it's it's maybe it's it's a sign of professionalism that we are there at this point. But um, I mean, just when I mined in two thousand eleven. Um, I would typically not sign up with anything. I would, for some of the mining, mining pools, I would not even have a, have an account. I would just like log in on the fly. So I would point my miner to a mining pool and as the username, so the place where I'm supposed to enter my username, I would just enter my payout address. No registration before necessary, no, no terms and conditions. And they would then like once a day pay me out. It's, it's good that we are not there anymore, but I was surprised when I saw that. I think back in 2011, I would have been upset from a miner's perspective. But okay, so then a few days later, I think it was two days later, uh, there was another transaction from the same source address, again, with the exact same fee. And I tried to look at the numbers and make sense of the numbers. Like if, um, if maybe there is uh, some message encoded in the number, either in, in, the, in the fee rate or in the fee, so the gas price, uh, or in the total gas, but, but those, those seems really like random numbers. 
uh, one thing that did stand out is that these were the, the destination addresses, the ones that got the $100. Those were addresses sent to before. This is also where then um, speculation started uh, moving over from accident to being a heist. And this is actually a type of heist that I did talk about before with some people that we discussed internally within crypt storage and where we also made um, protections that this is not worthwhile. Why did we, or what would be the heist? How, would you, how did we do it? And how is that being used? The type of heist would be that if, uh, if you are um, a miner and you can, let's say the, 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 the mining pool or the, somebody, somebody has, a, um, has a setup where or due to a smart contract or due to a code on their end or something like our approval terminal, um, they do approve transactions based on predefined, predetermined uh, criteria. Uh, and if you have something which says, okay, every transaction under 100 bucks um, does not need to be approved by a human, it's just automatically approved, then there is the second part of it. The second part is uh, if the fee is just set to extremely high, then it might pass all the, all the constraints, all the restrictions that are being set by, um, by the conditions, by the fixed conditions, but you would still lose a lot of money as, as the, the party sending this out. Uh, at the same time, that money would go to miners. So somebody who is an attacker and tries to get that money uh, would need to be a miner himself. I hope that was remotely clear. So if I, if I find such a thing um, and I would be a miner, then I would um, have some rich party, some exchange, whatever, uh, sign a transaction that transfers a hundred bucks, but transfers a million bucks to the mining pool. And I would then um, try to get this million dollar by being the mining pool myself. So I would try to not broadcast that transaction through the peer-to-peer -peer network, but instead I would try to keep that transaction with me and only I included in the block. Of course, this is not a not a not a sure thing. There are a few things that can that can go wrong with this. For example, um, if the fee is particularly high, then um, then the next miner might decide to not build on top of my block but built on top of the previous block and take the high fee paying transaction into his block. And that might end up being the stable chain, but I have a rather high chance of getting rather high amount of money. So as a, uh, as a mining, as, as a miner myself, uh, that would be what I would try to do. This is like lesson learned to everybody who auto approves or auto sends on predetermined criteria, include the transaction fee in there as well. Um, this is what we do in the automated approvals, in the policy approvals uh, that we do in the approval term that we set uh, reasonable numbers for, um, for, for fees. This is actually one of the points that I wanted to talk about because this is not particularly easy because mining fees can be significantly different from one week to the next. And if I set up an address that I intend to use for the next five years, uh, then setting an upper amount for the fee um, that I can send, that I can easily send from that address uh, is actually challenging. Um, how would I do that in a way that is not like gameable, um, that doesn't depend on third-party information? And what we recommend to our clients is typically uh, to, to allow a rather high fee. So allowing something that in today's terms would be $5,000 fee, which is of course completely overpaying for um, for a transaction. So you do run the risk that 
if you have an operational mistake, you're paying out too high fees. Um, but this is not what this protection is about. This protection is about preventing somebody from launching a large scale attack that would take a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of energy, um, would require a miner um, to, 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 to do that. Um, and if he sees that the best that he can get out of this is 5,000 bucks, he's just disincentivized from even trying this attack. And that's good enough, right? This is not protecting you against spending too much on fees. It's about preventing somebody from trying to use an exploit to make you spend really big amounts on him. That's, that's good enough uh, and does not inhibit your day-to-day -day operations. And it would have prevented this case for sure. So was that such a heist? Uh, there are very obvious reasons to see, to believe that this was not. How could you see it? You could see it, for example, by, by looking at the mempool prior to the block being mined. Did the transaction propagate through the network or was it only injected at that, at that particular miner? So if you would have like snapshots of the mempool at certain points in time, you would be able to get that information. I don't have these, uh, these snapshots of, of mempools, but I'm sure that there are people who do that. And if not, then maybe they should start doing it. It's really like an, an insightful metric. But there is one more very obvious thing uh, that, that says that this was not a heist. It was two different miners who mined the two different, the, the, the two, these two fees, and both of them were mining pools. If this would be an attack, you would see that at a Zolo miner, not a mining pool. One was Ethermine, was, one was Spark Pool, and actually, um, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but both of these pools offered to, to pay the money back, or both of them did not distribute it immediately to, um, to their miners. One of them distributed it like four days later, announcing on Twitter, okay, nobody, went, nobody got in touch within four days. Uh, so there is really no reason anymore for us to, to hold this back. Then they distributed it um, to their miners. Uh, and the other pools had a deadline for yet a few days later. And before the end of that deadline, the, the exchange who lost this money indeed got in touch briefly before it's, the money did not move yet, but like chances that they will get the money back. So if it was not an accident, it was not a heist, but still it happened. Uh, the next thing that came up was, okay, maybe it's blackmail. Maybe um, somebody found a way to, to make the, let's, let's, let's just already take into consideration that this was an, an exchange that did this, that lost, that lost the money, makes it easier to talk about. So somebody found a way of making an exchange lose money. Just does this once, waits a bit, does that a second time, and then writes an extortion uh, mail to the exchange telling them, hey, I will do this over and over again until you give me 500K, um, scorched earth type attacks. This did grow some, some, uh, so some people, a lot of people were jumping on that. This did sound reasonable. And actually, uh, Vitalik Buterin also tweeted something along these lines. So this, this was the, the predominant theory for a time. But then um, a few researchers stood up and said, okay, uh, with nice articles uh, headlined, uh, researchers disprove that it was uh, um, blackmail. Uh, but this disproving was actually just giving a few arguments, main, mainly saying, if you are an exchange uh, and you still do have control over those keys, right? So the exchange was still, there was still money going in and out of these addresses. Why would you not just withdraw your funds to a different address 
um, in this kind of scenarios? And that's a, that's a reasonable question. Um, depends a bit, of course, cost of doing business, right? Because uh, changing your wallet structure, changing just this, why do you not just use different addresses? That can be very cumbersome. Like depending on, on the way that the exchange operates, if you have, um, if you have for example, the, the, the smart contracts that, uh, or if you have the pay-in addresses that you give out to your clients, if those, for example, would be smart contracts that forward to that particular address, then uh, revamping that, just switching over to new addresses, giving that out to all your counterparts and all to, to all your clients, now that's not something that you pull off in a, in a day or two. So uh, you could actually decide to, okay, we, we change our limits, we, we empty this wallet like um, every day so that there are only small amounts on there. Uh, but you could actually, as a reasonable exchange, decide to continue using this address because the cost of switching over might be might be high. Of is course, this, is this cost two million high? Probably not two million, but um, and I, I did not look at the inflows and outflows outflows too detailed myself. Uh, but you could decide. I mean, maybe this two million is what is on this uh, on this address if you only withdraw every week. Uh, and you could decide then to withdraw every day, and then it's lower values. It's not quite how it was uh, at the time when, we, when the first uh, when the first of these transactions happened. The amount on this address was actually more around 10 million. It was it was really like blackmail. Sounds like a reasonable like a like a plausible option, and a few days later, even that did not really quite make it as much to the to the news. Uh, there was another transaction from a different address that also highly overpaid. Nobody really knows if this is in the context of the same owner of these addresses or if this was just incidental. But uh, at this point, really, I, I think up to this point, nobody really knows how many addresses there are under control by this exchange and uh, what their wallet setup is, how these addresses interact with each other. What I did check is that this address is just an address. It's not a smart contract. It could uh, also move funds to, to some other address, which uh, which is Again, uh, a bit strange, as I said in the beginning, it would be a heist. Then if the attacker has somewhat control over what transactions happen, he, he could also try to transfer the money for, to himself. The argument against that are, would be, he did transfer to somebody who also received funds before. So apparently there's some sort of whitelisting involved, but this whitelisting is not happening on, the, uh, on, the, on a smart contract level. It happens uh, off chain. So there is quite a, still quite a lot of, of unanswered questions around this. By now, the exchange is, has been uh, doxxed by, I forgot who it was, but the, the, this, uh, there was one researcher mostly involved also in this blackmail theory, and he doxxed the exchange. By now, it's an exchange called Good Cycle. Has anybody ever heard of Good Cycle? No. It's a Korean peer-to-peer-ish exchange. I find it a bit, I'm not quite sure if I, if I find it smart uh, because if you, um, if you try to, to search, if you try to Google for a good cycle hack, you don't see that at all. Right? If you, so you, you, you would find websites on websites on how to modify your bike, but, but you, don't, you don't get the information that you're actually looking for. Uh, but so that's the upside. If you ever do an exchange, do one that has like a different meaning if together with hack. But the downside is also if you look for good cycle exchange, 
uh, you also end up with bike stalls. It, it seems to be rather smallish, which, uh, which to me makes it even more frightening uh, that they have 10 million pumps on this one address and apparently more addresses. Uh, how was this exchange identified by the researcher? Well, the researcher um, had, had, a, had an idea that this is what happens, um, re uh, requested an, an pay-in address from this exchange, uh, transfer 0.5 Ether to this pay-in address, uh, and those were then follow, forwarded to this compromised address. Like after he already figured everything out, this researcher, it was still being used uh, in these processes. And now they also came out with requesting uh, the funds from one of these tools, I think from, from Sparkpool, I'm quite sure, either Ethermine or Sparkpool. Uh, so they might get some of the money back. I think I will, I will mostly leave it here. Uh, I do have a few conceptual problems with, this, with these fee handlings. I did mention how we do it with our clients, but there are different setups where this might be much more difficult. For example, in, in decentralized finance on Ethereum, um, it's semi-easy because each operation needs to be initiated by somebody. Even if you have a timed operation saying you do a simple one, I put in money and a year later I can get money with interest out. Then putting this in and getting this out are operations that are initiated by somebody, by some human, and that human pays for the fee. So the fee always is like handled separately from um, from the from the funds. Uh, there are also ways in which you can make the funds off. Actually, I'm not quite sure for Ethereum if this works. Somebody know? Can I can I can I have the fee of an of an internal follow up transaction being paid for by the funds of the smart contract? If I write the smart contract in in such a way, I think not. But for sure, it's possible in in EOS, for example, because EOS has a concept of uh, of delayed transactions. Ethereum does not. I cannot say uh, I do a transaction now and as a consequence of that some other transaction will happen in a week. This is not how it works. Each transaction um, has to be initiated by a human or by somebody, by some address from the outside. You can then put restrictions on when is this allowed to happen. And as long as the game theory term works out and uh, that person has an incentive to actually do it, it will happen. Um, but still somebody has to do it. But EOS does have the, the concept of delayed transactions. And for those, um, you again have then the conceptual problem of how do you actually determine the fees there in a way that is, that is fair, that is not gameable. Um, I mean, determining fees is already a really, really hard problem. I did have a full episode about that outside of predetermined properties. So writing an algorithm that determines a current fair fee is really difficult, but I have to if I have to enshrine uh, those criteria either on uh, for a smart contract developer in the smart contract uh, with limited access to real-world information, with no real access except for maybe oracles that are unreliable uh, about uh, about a dollar equivalent of what I'm actually doing. Um, this becomes a really really difficult problem, and I'm not quite sure that this is sufficiently priced into the complexity of decentralized finance. At least I did not find much information about this topic. Okay. Not way to launder money? Yes, uh, you could also launder money by paying fees, um, but also in that way you would need to an, an agreement with the, with the miner. So it would actually, so the, the, it's, it's a, of course a slightly different setup, 
but and you might be willing to forfeit some of that to the miner. So if you say there's a mining pool of which I am 50%, I might be fine with, uh, with having that mining pool mine the money in order to launder it. As soon as everyone, somebody or everyone suspects it or knows about it, and then basically you are burned, right? Can it also be that the exchange owns the mining pool or part of the mining pool? Or well, not in this setup because it was it's two very popular and very big mining pools. At least Ether miners. I'm not quite sure how popular and big Spark pool is, and and there were two different pools. But 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 yeah. Yes. Sorry. Theoretically, yes. But then we are back in this, there would quickly be suspicions. Okay, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by CryptoFinance. We are happy to receive comments and feedback. Email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch.